The Intrafish podcast is brought to you by DSM Animal Nutrition and Health, accelerating sustainable and profitable aquaculture. Welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood, aquaculture, fisheries, and aquatech news. I'm Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry, joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo. I hope everyone's doing well as the year is winding down. I know that we're looking forward to it. It has been a crazy year. Uh, right now, we're in the middle of uh, doing our Outlook series. Where we're talking to some C-suite seafood executives about what they see uh, coming ahead uh, for 2023. Um, and we're kind of rounding up our, our stories for um, for um, for the the top um, the top things to look at for 2022, or the top stories that really stood out for 2022. So keep your eye on interfish.com, and we'll be rolling those out. Um, but it's given us a lot of food for thought. So we will have an end of the year wrap up and uh, John and myself and maybe another guest star too will uh, we'll take a look at uh, at some of those and, and dig down a little bit deeper but today today John we are going to be talking again about plant-based seafood which is one of your favorite topics um, and one that you've been covering for a long long time one that really the industry has Ooh, I don't know, gone um, on a roller coaster ride with. Um, there has been fear, there has been embrace, there has been all kinds of different ways that different parts of the industry has viewed uh, uh, plant-based seafood. But the bottom line is that many, many companies uh, over the past year in particular have begun to embrace plant-based seafood and they see it as an important part of their kind of broader Offering and in particular in the frozen branded uh, sector. And just to give you a sense of that, in the UK, uh, Birdseye Igloo and Young's, the two largest frozen fish finger and uh, frozen fish suppliers uh, to that market. Uh, they've both entered that uh, that sector um, in a in a big way, really, for Bird's Eye Igloo, um, a very big way, um, with its its line they call Green Cuisine, and that can sit right alongside, especially in the European markets versus their their UK market, can sit right alongside fish sticks, and really the advertising is um, pretty interesting, particularly since they actually sell fish sticks, is they'll actually call them fish sticks. And they'll kind of put it in quotations on some of the branding and then just kind of say sort of tiny vegan fish sticks. So interesting ways to approach, John. You've written a lot about the branding of it. But let's talk today about uh, WWF, the NGO, incidentally, the founder of the Marine Stewardship Council. Um, typically a group, I would say, John, from my point of view, that has come to the table often with uh, industry to come with come with some, some real-world solutions. And um, the MSC is a good example of that. Uh, WWF actually uh, founded it in partnership with Unilever, the big uh, fast-moving consumer goods group that at that time, in the mid-90s and late-90s, uh, owned 
uh, um, uh, Frozen Fish International, a lot of the uh, what was called Frozen Fish International, which was producing a lot of the Birdseye Igloo branded um, fish products. All right. With that setup, WWF Switzerland, uh, a story our colleague Matthew Wilcox looked at. Um, WWF Switzerland did what's called a life cycle assessment or a life cycle analysis. Now, LCA, um, it's one more sort of eco uh, eco acronym, I guess we could say, that is um, probably confusing, certainly confusing to, to, to consumers, people that are buying fish, um, but also really uh, confusing to the industry as well that's trying to continually wrap its mind around what is the next trend in sustainability. Well, we can answer that. It's emissions. Um, and life cycle analysis is an important part of that. And basically, if you break it down, it is kind of what it sounds like. You're looking at the life cycle of a product from beginning to end. So from the harvesting of the fish, for example, all the way down to when the fish finger is opened up by a consumer and, you know, the cooking begins. Um, so it's supposed to give you a sense of exactly what the overall footprint of a product is. Um, they can be incredibly complicated. Um, you know, we, we've been looking at some over the past few days and it's just sort of head scratching as to whether or not this data has any meaning. Um, but again, it's kind of one of the things that is available to measure, uh, emissions impact. So WWF did a, I don't want to say study, maybe fact sheet is better, um, kind of looking at the life cycle analysis of plant-based fish sticks uh, against what we can call, quote unquote, real uh, fish sticks. Let's call it that. Um, now, most of fish sticks uh, in Europe, and they are extremely popular in Europe, or they're called fish fingers, I should say, um, most of them are made with Atlantic cod, or Alaska Pollock. And so those are pretty well documented fisheries. Uh, most of the fisheries that, um, that harvest large volumes of those fish are certified to the Marine Stewardship Council standard, um, tend to be well managed. Um, but according to WWF, when they dug into um, fish um, and plant-based in this uh, life cycle analysis, they found that uh, plant-based fish fingers um, are far, have far less of an impact on the uh, environment. And they really wanted to kind of undercut that. Interestingly enough, it, it seemed like it wasn't out of a desire to say, here is what the uh, impact of, fish, uh, of fisheries are, but rather look how great the impact of plant-based uh, fish fingers are because, um, as Catherine Vogler, she's a senior manager for seafood markets at WWF Switzerland. She told us that in Switzerland, there is a resistance to plant-based alternatives. And one of the main arguments put forward is that, uh, is it because they are highly processed, they're equally damaging to the environment. And their study wanted to take a look at that and found that plant-based performed better. Um, John, it already sparked a lot of, um, strong reactions from the industry. We, we talked to Craig Morris. He's the executive director of the Association of Genuine Alaska Pollock Producers, a U.S. Uh, Alaska Pollock Association that has done life cycle analyses of its fishery. Um, and then, of course, all over social media kind of blown up. And yeah, I'm, I'm going to turn it over to you now. What did you make of the study? 
Well, well, first of all, maybe people aren't buying them because they just don't taste good. So, you know, we'll put that aside for a moment. We we are talking about food here, so taste is kind of critical. However, let me start by saying it makes total. You started uh, your conversation by talking about seafood companies adding it to their portfolio, especially especially the frozen uh, seafood brands. And that makes total sense to me. Uh, I mean, I have no problem with plant-based. It makes sense that if I was selling, you know, fish sticks or whatever it may be, that I would bring in a good product that speaks to a whole nother range of consumers that probably don't want to buy my, my current product, which is made from real fish. So that makes total sense to me. I see more of that happening in the industry as we go forward. This particular thing that you brought up, the WWF study, it, it, where do I start? Um, it, it bothers me for a couple reasons. First of all, and this is overall the the whole marketing approach it seems of the plant-based uh world right now is to go out there and disparage whatever their competition is if it's cows or fish or whatever it is that seems to be the tip of their spear that they lead with and never been a big fan of that you know having to knock somebody down to make yourself better that mm, that doesn't resonate with me personally, or I don't think it's a good tactic overall. Um, the other thing I really, <laughs> I really wonder about, I'm trying to think like what this means beyond this immediate moment and what it might mean down the road. And this feels an awful lot like me, like the early days of the sustain, a sustainable seafood movement where there's this little uh, dipping toe in water type of approach to see what resonates uh, as far as, and not, not scare tactics, but tactics that say, you know, you should take this product because it has more benefits and positive attributes than that one. So this, I, I could see this whole life cycle thing becoming really ingrained in a move in this plant-based movement as we go forward as justification for you should be choosing plant-based well i not that i disagree you know that there are benefits of plant-based but you know it, it seems to me the sector that that whole plant-based sector has become I don't even know what the right words are, but it's like a mafia almost. And if you disagree, you you are really ostracized and, you know, characterized as somebody who doesn't give a hoot about the planet, blah, 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 blah. So uh, there's just a lot of things happening there in the way they're approaching consumers that I I don't. I don't think are working right now, so they may down the line, but I mean, do you know any consumers that go to the store and want to know the life cycle of their can of peas or what? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I, I, I don't, but you know, I'm sure people do, but again, you know, we can't even <laughs> we can't even capitalize on the sustainable seafood 
message that we've had since 1999, this idea that people are going to the Whole Foods and looking for the sustainable seafood, eh, it's it doesn't bear out. It doesn't bear out in any of the, the concrete data that you research time and time again. It's a slow drip, sure, you know, over time, but... I, I I don't know. I'm just I'm not a fan of trying to say you know our product is saving the world and your product is destroying it. And when you boil it down, that's what they're saying. Well, you know, I, I think your point about sustainable seafood, um, John. And let me apologize to people listening. I've been fighting off a cold, so I sound like you know I'm just talking through a nose, um, but. Deal with it. Um, but John, your your point about sustainable seafood is interesting, but I'd argue with you there that it's because sustainable seafood in, in that, if we can call it a movement, has sort of peaked and um, I don't want to say go, gone down. It's just that it's been – it's now baked in, I think, to consumer expectations and to retail expectations. So I don't think we're really – any longer talking about overfishing, for example. And while maybe you and myself may not be sort of in tune with the idea of emissions and emissions as a gauge for whether or not something is sustainable, I do think that a younger generation, that resonates more than um, sort of some of the other messages, maybe the, the sort of eco labels that we've gotten used to. And I, I really do think that we're moving now towards a focus on much more on social and uh, em- emissions. Well, I don't, I, do, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I, I think that's true. And I remember, I think Hannah uh, on our team wrote a story about e- labels developing um kind of showing emissions levels and and that's you know you can expect that that will be a thing not too far down the road and and you could see this wwf uh study in particular is is uh you know a progression in that direction so i don't i don't disagree and i'm you know i i sound i probably sound out of touch i'm not out of touch about it i just <laughs> I, 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 uh, yeah, I'm just not a fan of the approach, but. So let's talk a little bit about plant-based in general, as we kind of got into the end of the year, because I, I was looking past, looking at our past coverage, you know, and it really in the beginning of the year, there was still sort of this exuberance. I personally don't think we've seen even the beginning of what's going to happen with uh plant-based, but what I am, if I'm looking ahead to say 20 years, um, it's cell based that I think is much more going to be um, prominent uh, than plant based, which plant based is just kind of another way to process food, you know, which is, um, yeah, I mean, there you have it. Is it better for the environment? Is it worse for the environment? Um, it's just another way to process food. Um, but I will, I, I just wanted to quickly, uh, um, our friend Dina Shanker at Bloomberg, um, who if you haven't read Dina's stuff, you really should because she um, she covers plant-based uh, companies and um, and it's, it's she does a great job keeping up on them and um, check her out. Um, but you'll, you'll see some of the recent headlines here um, and I'll end with my favorite one. But um, just recently, slaughter-free meat sounds futuristic because it still is, which is a story about just kind of how far away we are from 
uh, from cell-based uh, meat and how investors are kind of saying, huh, this isn't going to come through the way I thought it was as quick as I, as I thought it would. Um, she's reported on scandals beyond meat plants, dirty conditions revealed in photos and documents. Uh, beyond meat cuts more jobs as plant-based meat demand cools. Impossible Foods cuts its workforce and reorganization. Um, you know, once hot fake, fake meat sales slide on price being price and being too quote unquote woke. Uh, and then my favorite was, I mean, this come on, this is the greatest headline in the world. I mean, how do you, what, what, what else can you do as a journalist? This story is going to write itself, uh, beyond meat COO suspended for biting man's nose after college football game. And it's got a great picture of his mugshot. And I think it kind of sums up in a way where uh, where some of the plant-based food producers have gotten very competitive, uh, highly um, fragmented environment. Um, and then again, it's it's as it's as, um, you know, it, it, it's as vulnerable to the whims of the market as anything else and even more. And John, you were just saying before we started the podcast that, you know, you've seen deep, deep, deep discounts of some of these uh, products and uh, in on your retail shelves. Um, what's your sort of feeling specifically, let's say specifically plant-based seafood, uh, where are we in the lifespan then of this? Are we still in the, you know, in the startup going to ramp up, see big growth or what do you think? Are we going to see kind of a plateau for a while? Yeah. I mean, we're still in the early, early stages. I mean, no plant-based seafood companies to my knowledge have any true scale yet doesn't mean they won't but i think it goes back to your opening comment i think when they get to a scale uh that's considered successful they will be taken over by the gortons and the others that dominate the freezer cases for seafood they're they're not going to be allowed to chip away at any market share that those guys may want to get from this new segment of consumers. So to me, we're at that stage where everybody's throwing money in it. Everybody's doing a little bit. It's, you know, every day there's a new one uh, born and they're going to do, you know, a different fish cake than the guy next door. So we're in that kind of chaos right and then that obviously just goes through a deep deep funnel and funnels down to a few who survive it and they usually get acquired somehow by giants and that's the way i think it is but as far as let's just look at um chilled meat refrigerated meat alternatives um that are out there uh uh marie rowrink 210 analytics sent some numbers through yesterday, as a matter of fact. And she looked at, I'm not going to look at dollar sales because dollar sales to me with inflation, it's, you know, it's hocus pocus. But I think pound sales, like how much volume of this stuff is being sold compared to, you know, last year or whatever. So for the, um, for the last 52 weeks ending, uh, let's see, November 27th, Pound sales versus a year ago are down 13.5%. And she breaks it down by the 
quarterly starting in Q1 2021 and since Q3 2021, pound sales have been falling versus a year ago um, significantly, minus 3.3, minus 5.5, minus 7.6, minus 15, minus 17, minus 19 for the whole four weeks of November. So this is the product people know best when you say plant-based oh yeah like beyond burger you know that's what that this is the the shining star the in the meat section for the for plant alternatives um and it's not doing well now you got to give credit to the dairy side of the well it's not dairy but in the dairy aisle where plant-based alternatives almond milk those types of oat milk um they're doing really well and they're doing well against traditional dairy. So um, it depends where you are in the store, I suppose. But if we use meat, the current meat situation to kind of um, shadow what seafood might do, it, it doesn't look real great right now. I wonder too, like you said, is that kind of at the root of what's um, what the WWF study was about? Or, you know, are plant-based companies now needing to sort of reach out to some sustainable uh, allies, you know, some NGO allies, um, because really the story has been pretty good for, um, for fish fingers. And I think, um, you know, as the WWF uh, Switzerland executive said, fish is put forward as a climate friendly alternative because at least the analyses uh, of harvesting on some of these fisheries has come out okay, even with the diesel uh, usage. Part of it, 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 the confusing thing to me is life cycle analyses, um, they don't seem to be apples to apples. And what I mean by that is I'm not quite sure how you compare and score, say, water usage uh, versus, uh, you know, water usage of, of plants that you need to grow for plant-based, uh, fish fingers versus water usage of Alaska Pollock, which would basically be getting fresh water on board and using it for washing dishes or going to the bathroom or showers or whatever. Um, and similarly, you know, um, you're not tilling any soil or anything like that. Your, your, your product, your protein's already out there in the water, um, and it's really not contributing or minimally contributing to the environment. Um, so I do wonder sometimes with these life cycle analyses, I mean, how far back should one go, you know, because what is the life cycle? I mean, how, you know, the big bang, I don't know, or something else, if you have other belief systems. So it's, um, yeah, I, I just get a sense that this, the life cycle analyses, it's going to be sort of used as the next way to measure foods, but I'm not so certain it's the, I'm not clear what the meaning of it uh, is exactly, but that could just be me. But I mean, when you read these reports, I mean, they are really complex and they don't add up. And so for example, um, I looked at Morningstar Farms uh, report and impossible, I think it was impossible foods reports this morning and they're so, so different, but they're producing a similar product. And so it, it was very, very confusing. And even they had the same uh, analyst group, uh, Qantas, which did um, an Alaska Pollock study. So I'm just, 
confused and I think I'm going to be just like many other consumers across Europe, uh, Asia and the United States and, and South America and Africa that will be wondering what exactly am I supposed to do with all this information I want. I want a traffic light system. I want an up. I want a down. That's all I need to worry about to make my quick decision. Yeah, but what's a fishery like uh, the Alaska Pollock fishery supposed to do? I mean, it it is it's not in dispute that it's one of the best managed fisheries in the world. And it's not just the industry saying that. Scientists tell you that these are. These fishery managers are professionals, brilliant scientists. They know what they're doing as best as they can. I mean, the you know the ocean's kind of a mystery, no matter what. So, what are they supposed to do in the Alaska pollock fishery? They they got fully uh, certified by the Marine Stewardship Council, which is the gold standard of third party certification. They've done a you know hats off to. Craig and the people at Gap, they did a life cycle analysis. They did it earlier this year or last year. I don't really remember. But when that when that press release came over my desk, I was like, what the hell is this all about? Right? So they've already done this. And you know, to now to for WWF to, you know, again call into question like it, to me, it's calling into question the fishery itself. So if you follow that to its logical conclusion and and understand that the fishery is is sustainable as, as best we can measure, et cetera, et cetera, then they just don't want the fishery to exist is, is where I end up with stuff like this. And, you know, that wouldn't surprise anybody, I don't think, but... Um, uh, yeah, so the whole thing, uh, you know, I'm I'm sorry, I'm sounding like the old man that I probably am, but the whole thing it just seems smoke and mirrors to me at this point. I think, you know, as it evolves, like you just said, it, it, there's a lot of apples to oranges here, and you know, maybe a, a single kind of measurement will come about that can make things a little fairer and maybe easy to understand but i don't i don't think this wwf uh thing is that at all well let me use what you just said to kind of springboard onto a couple other elements of this that i think are really really um really salient um one here is that the emissions and the um the ranking of uh of proteins is i think going to become a larger issue. Um, now, the Fair uh, Fair Collar Initiative, which is a, a consortium of uh, of uh, investors that research um, investments in different segments, including the protein sector, they did another um, another report. Uh, they do one annually, ranking. Bear in mind, publicly listed companies. So any information that's out there with non-publicly listed companies or that it, that's not released to the public, if that information, I'm not sure if they're all all public, but at least quasi and being able to release um, you know, uh, data on, on what they do. Um, but once again, salmon farmers came out I mean really, really looking good. If you were to take this this research at its uh, at its value, um, 
And there's questions about, like any research in any of these groups, it's it's sometimes difficult to see what their ranking systems are and whether or not they are arbitrary. However, in this particular ranking, by all the different measures that they have put in place, um, Salmon is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of the top 10 companies. That's kind of astonishing. So number one, the number one, as they are describing it, um, I guess we could say most sustainable protein is maybe a way to, to put it. You could probably kind of drill in that, on that a little bit better um, if you were to kind of you know drill down on the different factors. But I think that's the best way to describe how what this um, report is doing. So Movie, the world's largest salmon farming company, it's got a market cap of twelve billion U.S. dollars. Uh, sits right at the top, right at the top. Grig, uh, also Norway-based, right below it. Um, Leroy Seafood, also up there. Uh, Salmonis Kamenchaka, Chilean Salmon Farmer, Baca Frost, Veroe Salmon Farmer, Multi-X, Chilean Salmon Farmer, and Salmar, uh, Norwegian Salmon Farmer, are all up there very, very high. Um, now a big part of that is looking at feed conversion, conversion ratio, um, but also looking at emissions and factors like that. Now, just to bring that back around a bit, John, about fishing and about these fisheries, um, now this is, this is going to be open for debate. And so as people listen to the podcast, um, by all means, you know where to get us. Um, so you can call and, and argue, and I really would like to hear people's points on this, but, um, I do think that fishing is in for some scrutiny um, on emissions that they should be aware of. And it's been quite interesting. I think we've spoken about this in some of the past podcasts, and certainly we've written about it. Um, But the fishing industry is increasingly, I think, becoming more on the defensive, or it needs to get more on the defensive because it will be on the emission story because of uh, some of the fuel usage um, and because aquaculture is so, um, it's so tightly controlled from beginning to end. Uh, and so there's so much more actionable data. But I think when you look at this, these statistics, um, Bear in mind, Leroy Seafood, uh, a good chunk of its company is whitefish harvesting. And they're in at number four. So, you know, um, take that for what it's worth when you're you're hearing me make this argument. But I would say that aquaculture is is now in a slightly more of a pole position on making some of these uh, arguments, which may be why um, I think we're seeing this this fairly dramatic shift over the past two years, three years uh, of, of uh, NGOs um, and others embracing aquaculture as a sustainable protein alternative. Um, but that struck me in the life cycle analysis that um, aquaculture may have a better story to tell than fisheries, certainly than some fisheries, depending on their efficiency, depending on uh, how they harvest, the length of time they harvest. Um, things can get... Um, complex because as is the case here, let's say we took the WWF findings at, at its, at its word, um, which Alaska Pollock uh, industry argues that no, it's, it's not, uh, accurate. But if we did take it at its word, what we would find then is that, um, a sustainably managed fishery, um, 
the Alaska pollock fishery is one of the first uh, certified to the MSC standard. So we find ourselves in this situation where a sustainable, sustainably managed fishery could be putting out more emissions than a, let's say, whatever, quote unquote, unsustainable production method or um, or aquaculture. Um, well-produced aquaculture. And so it's kind of interesting. It puts puts the industry and puts kind of everyone in this odd spot of, well, which one do you really recommend then? You know, and I don't even want to get into recommendations in Seafood Watch. We talked about that a couple podcasts ago. We'll talk about it again in the new year, I think. Um, or maybe maybe to my, maybe the, at our next, next podcast um, before as we wrap up the end of the year. But John, this does speak to, and this was kind of the discussion on social media, that oftentimes it seems um, – some of these NGOs, I feel like I thought this had changed a lot more over the over the years, but I'm seeing it kind of crop back up. But it seems like the right hand either doesn't know what the left hand's doing or intentionally the right hand is pretending like it doesn't know what the left hand is doing. Uh, and what I mean by that is a message from WWF Switzerland. Um, I don't see WWF as a group or in other regions going out and kind of touting this uh, finding. And so it's almost like, let's sneak it into the Swiss market. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, that that's debated all the time, whether uh, NGOs need to, I don't want to say fabricate, but inflate issues to keep them relevant, uh, keep funding, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, I, you know, that, that happens, this might be happening here, I don't know. But I think the point you made a few minutes ago is really one that industry should take away from this. And that is um, kind of take the lead from the from GAP, from the genuine Alaska Pollock producers, and look into this life cycle stuff for your fishery. Uh, I, you know, we said during the broadcast whether – whether I like it or not, or Drew likes it or not, is is irrelevant. What is relevant is this is becoming another way to measure food, to give consumers ultimately, I guess, um, a way to say that chicken's better or that plant-based thing is better than that chicken or whatever it may be. So no reason to get sideswiped here we you you see it coming um you know what it maybe call craig morris over there and kind of get a sense of why he did this you know earlier this year and how how he went about it and uh you know adopt it for your own fishery or your company or whatever it may be because um, you know, these things, these things grow as we know, and this is one of those things that has sprouted and is growing. Well, and we're, we're in a far more sophisticated time than when people were hanging banners off, uh, you know, retailers. I mean, this is a, this is definitely, a, a period where the financial industry has gotten involved. It impacts, um, interest rates on loans and, and all kinds of, of, uh, of other factors to have a, to be able to prove that your business is sustainable or setting sustainability targets. Um, and so I, I, I agree with you, John, that it's, it's coming. 
um, emissions will be number number one, I believe, I believe, uh, in terms of assessing the sustainability of a product, sustainability of a fishery, sustainability of a uh, aquaculture production method. Uh, that sits in another area where I think consumers are really expecting it. And I think rightly so that they should expect that when something is served to them, that that aspect of it is taken care of. And I think we have so much more technology, so much more certification methodologies, so many ways to ensure that those are, are being done um, as sustainable as, as possible. But the emissions side of things is where I think you're going to find a lot more scrutiny. And you see that many, many companies that have uh, that are involved in this have set targets. Um it's complex, and I can imagine that a lot of people in the industry are rolling their eyes and going, oh, my God, one more thing that I have to calculate and, um, and track. But, you know, in service of your, what your customers are going to ask for, that will likely be something they'll be needed. Um, you know, major companies have said it. Uh, of course, people like Cargill, who have plenty of money to throw at uh, setting up whole departments to look into this. But also, you know, kind of some of the quote unquote smaller companies like Greek Seafood, for example. Um, Leroy Seafood has also uh, set up targets as well. And you can see people are kind of feeling their way in the dark to know quite what targets to set and how it should work. And, you know, we've done a little bit of reporting on some of the goals that Cargill and um, Scredding have set for themselves on emissions. And once you set a target, um, that means you have, you are either going to meet them or you're not going to meet them. And so you mentioned Hannah, uh, Gazelius, who's been tracking this, um, in particular on the feed side. And she just looked at the Cargill, uh, report, sustainability report. And Cargill went actually in the wrong direction, uh, last year. Um, and part of that has to do with things that are, that are absolutely out of their control. Um, or, you get so inflation, for example, or you know, uh, shipping and logistics costs, and blah blah blah. Or think about this your emissions will, of course, go up if you expand. So, as an expanding business, and every business wants to grow, and that's all they're focused on if they really want to survive, is how do I grow? maintain or grow my profit margin. So Cargill, of course, absolutely wants to grow in aquaculture, and it's shown us that in big ways um, this year. Now, as you grow, your emissions outputs are going to grow. That's just simple math. And Cargill now also is moving from a cold water species, which is in the ocean, requires you know, it does require effort and and uh, and and environment uh, and energy use to uh, keep uh, you know to raise fish, but compared to land-based uh, fish farming, it's so much smaller. Um, warm water species are going to have a significantly higher uh, emissions uh, footprint. I'm not talking about land-based salmon farming; they've got their own thing that they're kind of touting in terms of, um, of, uh, route to market. But if you look at things like warm water shrimp, if you look at, uh, tilapia, pangasius, that's going to be an interesting thing that they're going to have to, uh, face both people supplying them like Cargill, 
um, but also the companies themselves. So there's just a lot in the mix there on um, you know on how companies are going to need to to factor in their uh, their emissions, and it's it's just a much different game when it comes to uh, sustainability. And I think it's really in its infancy of how this is measured, but I think I would would argue that sustainable sustainable seafood as a term, uh, you know, that I think is kind of baked in more, um, than it ever has been before, John. I don't know that, that you feel that same way. Yeah, no, I, I think so. I, I mean, it, yeah, I guess my point was, you know, cons- your point, it seems to be consumers just assume the fish they're getting at Kroger or wherever is sustainable. And I, I, I agree with that, but my point was that these groups, um, you know, as they've gone along this sustainability uh, journey, there's been attempts to rally consumers to this whole message and, uh, you know, through some marketing. And that's never stuck. You know, that they, they've, they've done a poor job of that. And I think they'll even admit it. But um, yeah, so but yeah, I think I think when I go to QFC or Safeway, I just assume the guy behind the fish counter isn't buying fish off the back of a truck, uh, you know, from so, some guy down the road. So, yeah, I, I agree. You know, I think the emissions labeling that, that we're seeing, I think Denmark is going to be the first one of the first ones to roll it out on products, on food products. And then the European Commission, I think, is working on its own. Um, I'm assuming the UK will likely follow, um, certainly, uh, European countries not in the EU will follow. Um, and it it will take, it will be, it'll take a a longer timeline, but I would imagine that that kind of traffic light labeling, um, in the U S will come probably as a voluntary standard, not necessarily a mandatory standard, but I can see how given the pressure on the Walmarts of the world and the Cisco's and, uh, uh, all the other, uh, retail and food service buyers, these things will, I'm sure in the boardroom, they're discussing them as we speak, uh, and discussing how they're going to do climate labeling. Um, climate labeling to me has one big ace in the hole. Uh, and that's that it's, it's extremely universal. The stoplight is one of the few, one of the things we can all agree on around the world that red means stop, green means go, uh, yellow means, I don't know, wait a little bit. Um, but you can see from seafood watch again, um, touching on it only briefly, um, that consumers really like that level of some simplicity when they're being told what they should or shouldn't eat. Um, and so, yeah, buckle up. I think it's coming. And I think that this study is probably the first of many that will be rolling out of life, life cycle analyses. There's going to need to be, um, you know, uh, study versus study. There'll be like the, the Pollock, uh, industry did. They're going putting their, their research up against what WWF and saying, Hey, ours is far more thorough. Um, and you're going to start to see those arguments all over the place. I think you'll see aquaculture companies rebutting, um, NGO analyses and it's going to be a mess. But as you said, John, I think you're spot on buckle up and get ready. The industry is going to have to really, uh, start, uh, showing its carbon footprint. So yeah, 
go ahead and get ready uh, for that paperwork. You better find somebody on your staff who's going to um, have responsibility for that or budget in for a new staff member to take care of it. I'm sure everyone's really excited to be hearing about that, John. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what our carbon footprint is. <laughs> I don't like to think about it, uh, but I don't know. Um, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll start to factor that in. But, you know, we're not raising fish or catching them yet. Um, although it's not a bad, you know, it's not a bad uh, side hustle. So um, we can look into that in the new year. Um, hey, uh, we're going to wrap it up there. Don't forget that you can go to interfish.com and catch all our coverage. Right now, we are rolling out our Outlook series, um, C-suite executives from around the world. We're just asking them what were the main things that were of concern to them uh, and what they're seeing for the year ahead. So, um, again, really recommend that you look at that uh, and get some sense from these thought leaders of where your business might need to be going, where the industry is going. Uh, and, uh, and if you're hearing it directly from the horse's mouth, so we've got those rolling out. We've already had some fantastic, uh, CEOs and, uh, top executives that have given us their opinions and we'll have more of them rolling out, especially as we go over the holidays here and then we'll collect them. And in the new year, when you come back from your breaks, if hopefully you get a break, uh, you can come back and really study those as you start planning out what 2023 is going to look like for you. All right, folks, we'll look forward to talking to you next time. Thanks for joining us. Interfish podcast is brought to you by DSM Animal Nutrition and Health, accelerating sustainable and profitable aquaculture.